The word why, what a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. A key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. You know, look, I don't think anybody wants to be labeled as selfish, um, but I'm going to be selfish today. Um, there are, I have been, those that have followed me in my, my Forrest Gump career have probably seen that I've been very blessed to be around incredible people, uh, inspirational people that you've either known or recognized or those that you say, how did I not know them before? It's probably a little bit of both with my next guest. Uh, he is, after meeting Richard Gerver years ago, I started talking about sort of just good humans that I knew in my life. He is the he's the chairman of that group. And, you know, he's been kind over the years. It's been incredible to follow his career. He is a to say he's a speaker um, is is very one dimensional. It's very flat in the description of who he is as a human and the way in which he contributes his voice, uh, just not only in the UK, but across the world. He's a voice that definitely North America should know. And if they don't, they need to get on their high horse here and ride into 2024, bringing Richard Gerver into your environments, because you're going to learn a lot, you're going to feel a lot, and you're going to walk out a better person. Uh, Richard Gerver came to prominence as a head teacher, as they say in the UK, uh, when he turned around a failing school in the UK in under two years. Uh, he won all kinds of, of praise for that. And we'll talk a little bit about his relationship to Sir Ken Robinson and a very fateful day on stage when Sir Ken was behind uh, the curtain and heard a young Richard, uh, still young, <laughs> uh, really moving the audience and how that changed the, tra the trajectory of his life and where his voice could be heard. Um, the Walt Disney of the classroom by the UK media uh, has been how he has been described. Uh, a number of international awards, including a UNESCO Award for Leadership and Innovation, Global Guru, Top 30 Thinker, and the National Teaching Awards, Head Teacher of the Year. He is an author of four books. We have Change, Simple Thinking, Creating Tomorrow's Schools Today, and Education, a Manifesto for Change. We've got a children's book coming out in 2024 and a brand new podcast, The Learning Bridge, as well, that we'll be launching in 2024. So, uh, Richard, with that, I, I didn't stumble there. I thought that I might just because of my my affinity for you and the way in which you have connected with me over the years. But, you know, this is a long time coming. There are so many questions that I have. I feel like I'm a different person now. And so I want to ask questions that hopefully maybe you haven't had before, but that unlock a little bit of who you are, because I think there's a magic. I think people are looking for connective tissue out there, whether they know someone, they want to connect to what people are experiencing and apply that to their lives. Um, and with that, I'm glad that we're both casually dressed because we're typically on a tarmac somewhere on planet Earth. Uh, so nice to see you, Richard. Oh, Rod, honestly, you've, you've left me um, speechless, which at the beginning of one of these episodes is probably not a great thing. But um, <laughs> honestly, I, I when you hear one of your peers and somebody you deeply admire say such kind things about you, I think it 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 just leaves you um, a glow. So all I can say is thank you, and I hope I do you at least ten percent justice. <laughs> it's great to be here. I have no doubt. All right, we're gonna only because I know you. Uh, I want to I want to dive into this. It was something that I've been thinking about. 
I'm trying to understand the origin of sort of where things come. Maybe it's this is the age that I'm at. I want to understand. Maybe it's because I'm a parent and I look and see the growth and development of my young children and think that I influence that. Should I take credit for that? Or is that just sort of purely of them? Um, I want to understand the four walls of Richard Gerber. I want to understand the foundation. Um, because I think foundations talk, they denote history. They denote intention, uh, legacy building. And I want to understand the four walls of you, what makes you up. And I don't mean in the notion of walls keeping people out, but walls of building your character, your morality, sort of where you stand and what you speak about, because you're very passionate as a speaker. Kind of share with me, if, you're, if we go with this, sort of what are the four walls that make up you when we sort of look back retrospectively? Wow. I mean, I, to, to start with... Um... I was born into what most people would think was an incredibly stable and relatively privileged background. I was born into a um, Jewish family in northwest London, which is one of the desirable areas of London in the UK, to two families who, again, on the surface, were kind of were pretty much together. Um, unfortunately, my parents' marriage, which, you know, we've got to go back here to the late 60s, and people will remember this in, in North America as they will in, in, in Europe and the UK. Um, couples couldn't get together the way they can in the modern world, right? And if you wanted to be really deeply with somebody, marriage had to be the first step. And particularly in a middle-class society and, and community as the northwest london jewish community was so my parents ended up marrying very very young um and they had me very young and i think by their own admission they were both too immature to have had a child they should have been doing the sort of things people in their early 20s and late teens do now they never got that right so i'm trying to lay a bit of a a foundation for what came next so anyway as a result of all of that and i won't go into details really out of respect to both of my parents who are still living um i grew up in what was an emotionally very very messy place um to the point where and again you know we're going back now to the 70s when divorce and i don't know whether it was the same in in the u.s but divorce in the UK in the 70s, again, particularly in kind of middle-class communities, was was a taboo. It just wasn't, you know, it was something to be shamefaced of. You know, people would walk down the street, point at a house and go, well, that, that's a divorced house there, um, right? And so my parents clung on as long as they could. They even had my baby brother, but it was a mess. It was violent. It was a, it was a difficult place to be, emotionally challenging. Um, so as a young child, I was damaged by that, right? I had no self-esteem, no self-confidence. I had a stammer, um, which was a nervous stutter. It wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, you know, a, a, a psych, it was a psychological thing rather than a neurological thing. Um, I wore very thick glasses and, and for example, I was never allowed to appear in family photographs wearing my glasses because, that meant somehow I was imperfect to the world. Um, so it was a difficult place. My parents eventually uh, separated and divorced. Um, and I think this is where the main part of what happened and what drives me came from. During that period, 
Um, I was at a school in London, um, a fee-paying school in London. Like many Jewish immigrants, you know, the pinnacle for British society, for any immigrant, I think, community, is to fully integrate into that society at the, uh, and, and prove yourself as, a, as an anchor citizen. And, uh, and for my family, it was to send your children to British public schools, or perversely, that means, you know, the top private schools. I, I still can't unpick that, Rob, but anyway... <laughs> to one of the country's top public schools, which was fee-paying. Anyway, um, and I had a teacher when I was going through the mess of, of if you like, the divorce from my end, who noticed a, a profound change in me and took me under his wing. Um, and it's a story I have told before, but it is just deeply profound to me. Um, he, he was... His, his, he taught English and drama. And he said to me, you know, one of the things I think we ought to try and get you involved in, Richard, is drama. Because I think if you speak somebody else's words, and again, we've got to remember that, that psychological understanding of the impact, particularly on children, of events in their lives was really not that well known in the, 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 you know, the early, late 60s, early 70s. He said, I think if, if you if you do drama and speak somebody else's words, I think that would help because you're not going to be worried about what you say because it's not you. And amazingly enough, he was right. Um, and I think, you know, when I look back on my life, that paired together with the fact that when my parents had separated and I lived with my mother, who is a remarkable woman, um, and and I learned a little bit more about her childhood, where she had been incredibly artistic, very creative, um, had composed extraordinary pieces of music when she was a young teenager, even to the point where she composed the uh, waltz that my parents danced to at, on their wedding day. Um, Incredible. But had never been allowed to pursue that because that was not the kind of thing a middle-class white jewish woman in london at that time would do right so again she wanted me to live the life i wanted to lead rather than the life anyone told me i needed to lead so she gave me the kind of freedoms that as a parent when i i had kids i kind of balked at you know because i wanted my kids to be safe secure i wanted them to get, go to college i wanted them to get a degree and you know because you do um and she just said, look, do what you want. You know, you do what makes you happy and I will support you, not financially, but I will support you to the best of uh, as I can to be there. And I think even now, when I look back, my kids have grown up. That took, that took huge courage. So two people really built my foundations. Um, David, who was my teacher, who taught me about really caring deeply about somebody you didn't need to care deeply about and using really incredible ways of thinking to try and help unlock potential and my mother who who let me go on adventures i guess you know i <laughs> i wanted to be an actor um i was never good enough um and but i only realized that when i'd left school um and tried to be a professional actor the, the major flaw in my plan was i was useless um <laughs> And, and, you know, she must have sat there in, on the sidelines, biting her tongue. You know, try, there I was trying to be an actor. Then 
I decided I was going to be a real estate agent just as the market collapsed in the mid 80s, right? Like, honestly, never ask me to be a futurist or a trends analyst because whatever I tell you is going to be diametrically opposed to the truth. But those two people had a profound, profound impact on my life. I hope I'm not rambling, but, but that set the foundations. So if that's the foundation, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about, so I've interviewed a number of, of very well-known and, and recognized songwriters through the years, and you know, they'll talk about sort of this ownership of voice and knowing when they've got something, right? It, it's like tuning a piano and, and just knowing you're right on key. Um, was there a, a watershed moment when we think about your voice? Because I think we're in a world now where everybody thinks that they have the platform for voice and mm -hmm. expression, but I don't know if they put the time in or that it's authentic and it's something that will be received well within key. Um, but just because we have the technology and we are a global society, we think that everybody wants to hear our opinion. But mm -hmm. there are those that take it very serious. It's a craft. And I'm just wondering if there was a moment when you recognized that your voice resonated through and with other human beings. Was it the moment on stage when Sir Ken was backstage and heard you and thought, this is an interesting young guy, <laughs> interesting young chap on stage here. Um, and I want to know more about him and I want to invest the energy. Was it then or was there a, a point in time before or after that you just, you recognize that if you let this go, you'd be doing yourself a disservice. It's not about sort of anointing at all. It's just that you know, we recognize our talents and our skills. I mean, young people do, and they go, oh, wow, I'm really good at this. I think I'm going to lean in. I think, I mean, I think, I, I think there are three stages to that. The final one being um, Ken hearing what I had to say. Um, I, I mean, I don't know about how other people listening to this may feel, but I often describe that moment, if you like, that epiphany as being the moment where you finally, and for different people, it comes at different ages. You finally look in the mirror at yourself and you go, actually, I'm happy with me. This is, this is me. And this is because I think because of some of the complexity and challenge of my childhood, I went so much of my life, so much of my early life, um, trying to do what I wanted. I wanted other people to love me. I was desperate for other people to, to love me. And so I was trying to be and do and all of that kind of stuff because I just wanted affirmation and love, right? Seek, seeking behavior? Yeah, absolutely seeking behavior. And and I, I think it was all the way through, you know, part of the mythology of, oh, maybe I should be a real estate agent because maybe being a you know, millionaire real estate agent will be the thing that that will, or, you know, and it was when I, I was at college, I went to college late because I tried to be an actor and do all that other stuff. Um, and I met a young woman um, who was training to be an educator and we started dating. And she, after a few months, said, I'd love you to come into my school and do some drama with my kids. That was the first moment. That was the first moment because I suddenly found myself in an environment where I thought, how did I not know this is where I needed to be? And I had an impact on these young kids in a school in an area of social deprivation. And I just, it, I can't describe it, except it was like, there was it sounds daft but it was like you know a choir of angels going here it is this is 
this is where you should be. This is what you should be doing. It was, and I was bitten. Um, so I went on and, and trained to be an educator, became an educator. And the second moment, I think, because like most people, right, I, I, I never thought I was good at what I did. I never did what I did because I wanted fame or, you know, I didn't want money or I did what I did as an educator because I was in the right place at the right time. And I realized that was my calling. Um, I, I was good at working with young children and good at, at hopefully, hopefully lifting them up, helping them to dream and to aspire. Excuse my dog, by the way, if anybody's listening to your, this. Your dog is dreaming. <laughs> yeah, she, she, she absolutely is. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I, that was a big moment for me. And I trained to be a teacher, became a teacher, just so that people know, by the way, that, that young woman I was dating and I have now been married for 30 years. So it kind of worked out on all ends. The second moment was... So there I was doing my thing, right? And again, like most people, you do your job and you do it to the best of your ability, but you don't think what you do is remarkable. You just think you're doing your job. Um, and very quickly found that people thought I had huge talent for it and ended up as a school principal. It's kind of very long story short, became a school principal very, very young. I was 30, 31, 30, 31 and I was given the responsibility of turning around a failing school. And again, I won't tell the story today, but that's where, if you like, the magic happened because suddenly, you know, this school went from the point of closure, a state school in the UK, to being one of the most celebrated in the world. And again, I just thought I was doing my job, Rod, right? And then because of that, I ended up on a stage where Ken Robinson heard me speak. And he, and, and by the way, the way it had worked was, you know, we've got to remember this was before TED, this was before social media, this was before YouTube, really. Um, and so I knew of Ken because of his work in the UK around the education system. Um, but I wouldn't have known what he looked like, and I'd never heard him speak. And so imagine going to hear Ken, this guy, Ken Robinson, speak live, and you didn't know who he was, right? And then, boom. And then to be listening to him, knowing you had to follow that. That's like, I, I'm, no. Anyway, um, he listened to what I had to say and came up to me after I'd finished and hugged me. And that was the moment because we had dinner that night that went on until two in the morning. We met up again a few weeks later when he was back in London because by then he'd moved, only recently moved to California. And he said, you know what? You have a spectacular story to tell, and I need to help you tell it. Um, and so those were the moments. But listen, the other thing I have to tell people, and I'm sure this is a common pattern, I hope it is, um, I still have imposter syndrome. I still don't think of myself as anything remarkable. Um, I just hope people find me authentic and that I have a passion for the things I deeply care about. Um, and it still consistently amazes me that anybody would ever give up their time to listen to what I have to say. Um, but certainly those three moments were hugely affirmative. And obviously, I'm lucky I met Ken before he became megastar Ken. But to have somebody who I just heard speak the way he'd speak, say what he said to me and to take me under his wing and to give me his time and his love and his patronage 
was obviously a massive, massive thing for me in terms of giving me the confidence to believe I had something important to say and give. Headroom is produced by Old Soul, a one-stop marketing agency that understands the power of brand and nuance. Reach out to my guy Matt at Old Soul and supercharge your brand and content strategy. That's Old Soul. Shoot Matt a note at aoldsoul.com. That's A-O-L-D-S-O-U-L.com. And now, back to our guest. I'm so glad you brought up the imposter syndrome. Um, I, 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 this is what's fascinating to me, Richard. I, I want to try to understand what your voice now, what it represents. Does it represent the boy of a young Jewish woman in Northwest London, right, in the 60s and 70s that is trying to navigate through the gale force winds of emotion within a family that is struggling to understand and get its footing? Is it for the young child that was a part of your school? Was it for colleagues that were making a difference? And I say that as a backdrop because, you know, in, in my work and when, when I collaborate on a yearly basis at, at Vanderbilt University, these young people that are getting ready to enter the world, they are currently, well, it's going to sound like a broad statement, uh, but I do think it applies, um, is that there's a level of anxiety or there's a, there's a qualitative element of this of their anxiety that I don't know if we can fully comprehend in our age bracket um, because they're walking into a world that potentially has the answers for them and yet that's what we've been institutionalized to go after and pursue which is the answer mm -hmm. solve the problem well if 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 AI and quantum computing these sorts of things take that off the table what are these young people going to be walking into? And so I've walked into a lot of these conversations, and yet they've been structuring and building their voice over two decades to be something that is marketable, now concerned that those may not be the skills that people want. It's like traveling across the ocean and forgetting your power adapter. How can mm. I, I can't utilize my technology because I don't, I can't adapt to the power grid in the UK or somewhere, right? Yeah. And so it's about, Finding voice, it's about what do we represent and do we have the innate skills built up to be able to pivot in a, an incredibly turbulent time of change? And I know change is near and dear to your heart. I think people mm -hmm. are learning a lot just in our discussion today about maybe where some of those origins of change come from and how you've navigated them. But with that as the backdrop, help me understand how we should be thinking about representation. Because whether we're in political wars or in actual wars, representation seems to be something that we haven't really talked about, but all of a sudden we have to be on the side of a table, on the side of a of an opinion. Um, and I think that can impact anxiety, confidence, self-esteem. And so just, I'd love your, your thoughts on that. Well, the, I mean, I think the first thing is just to drop back into our opening exchange. Um, and I think this takes me back to the fact I had a mother that allowed me to be quite bohemian and, and, and what that is really interesting, I'll move forward and then come back to exactly what you've just said. When I wrote my book, Change, I interviewed my mum because one of the things that fascinated me was how come I've gone through my life making the kind of change decisions, sometimes voluntarily and sometimes just surviving moments, kind of and coming through them okay and unscathed. And, and you know, we talked about my childhood and she reminded me of something. I, she had that parent 
child conversation with me when I was about 12. You know, what, what do you want to be? What, where do you think you're going to go? And I said, I don't know, mum, but I'd love to spend my life performing and uh, communicating and writing. And then we suddenly looked at each other and realized that through the circuitous journey I've been on, that was exactly where I'd ended up, right? And, and at, at moments, giving up, you know, giving up positions, jobs that people thought, thought I was crazy. There I was, a school principal winning awards all over the world and, and gave it all up and gave up the salary and gave up the incredible pension plan that comes with being an educator in the UK and an educational leader, right, to become freelance. And you know what I'm talking about, right? So, and so one of the things that really interests me is why, and I've tried to track this through my life, and I hope this is where maybe the voice is for me and, and my understanding. So first of all, when you look at the world we're in now, I think so much of what we're dealing with and seeing, the polarization, the anger, the hatred, um, the, the disconnect, comes from a really um, challenging friction. And that friction is that we were all prepared through not just our education system, but often the way our well-meaning parents raised us to seek out certainties. So your point about trying to find the answer, the route, the journey, what is it I should be doing? What skills do I need to develop to make sure I have certainty in my life? What are the answers? Which side of the table do I need to come down on, right? Because I have to have a certainty. So are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? Are you, uh, you know, are you this or are you that? Are you, you know what I mean, right? Are you an artist or are you a scientist? Are you a, the whole thing, right? Um, are you going to be blue collar or white collar? All these questions, right? The, the we, and we're all expected to have a certainty, whatever that certainty is, and then cling on to it. And then that that's our, our route. And we're educated to think that way. And we're also educated to think when we find our certainty, if we've worked hard enough to find it and, and start to lock it down, our reward will be certainty, right? When you've got it like, ta-da, now you're going to be able to live that life forever in perpetuity. Well done. And of course, what we've seen happen over many years, but I think the first great accelerant for, for the world we're living in now was the global financial crisis, 2007, 2008, um, when some of that was thrown up in the air, jobs were lost, careers were finished. At the same time, in parallel to that, technology took on a level of acceleration that most human beings couldn't anticipate. Um, you know, the, we and, and I think with most of these things in the world, and we've seen it since as well, and with AI, right, there's a denialism. So we go, oh, we'll never be that serious. We see it with the environment as well. Oh, it'll never be that serious. It'll be okay. You know, it, it'll be fine. With COVID even, when the pandemic first hit, the denialism around the world was extra. Oh, it, it's, it'll be fine. It will never, it won't. You know, we saw it at a political decision le le level, right? Across, oh, it won't. It'll be okay. Because we're denying that our certainty is now going to be disrupted. So we're living in this world where our certainties are being shaken to an extraordinary extent. And to an extent, it's been proven to be mythological. It doesn't exist anymore. And so good, hardworking people have become angrier. You know, we're seeing it in Argentina at the moment with the election of the new right-wing leader. We saw it 
uh, a while back uh, in the Netherlands, where shockingly a new extreme right wing leader has been elected. We've seen it in the UK, in the US, around the world, right? And the people that have made these things happen in our democracies aren't bad or mad. They're angry. And they're angry because the certainties that they were promised don't exist. And so who do you blame? You blame the people that you think led you to that. Now, going back, and it's a rambling answer, right? My mother was almost a futurist because she raised me not to look for certainties. She raised me to trust my instincts. And I suppose a lot of my own lived experience and everything I talk and write about, I hope, comes from the orbit of my own experience, is based on an inherent belief that I'll be okay in the end. Now, that doesn't mean that during the global financial crisis, I didn't go through hell or the pandemic or the fallout of what we're seeing in Ukraine, or particularly for me, given my Jewish background in the Middle East, right? That that I'm not going through it and don't go through the anxieties, but there's something in my the back of my brain that just goes, you'll find a way, you'll find a way, you'll be okay, trust your instincts, we'll find a way through this. And I think that, that what I hope my message is to other people as a living embodiment of this, and particularly from somebody from our generation as a man in my mid-50s, is to younger people, to people of our generation, Listen, this is why you're feeling the way you feel. And trust me, these are the things I've used to navigate my way through. And it's not making a false promise that everything will be rosy, but it'll help, right? And I think a lot of it for me is about trusting our instincts, trusting our natural curiosity and ability to make links. And going right back to the root of your question, I now have learned not to take sides or to find definites anymore, right? So for me, my instinct when I see what's happening in the Middle East is to say there's good and bad on each side, and we've got to find the narrative that works for everybody. When I look at AI, I don't think, oh, my God, this thing's either wonderful or awful. I think to myself, there's a narrative, a story to be told here, which will work for everybody and everything and i think so much of the time in a world where we're being told to be polarized where the algorithms on social media are forcing us to come down on a side i suppose my core message is don't believe there is an answer don't think you have to cling on to a particular lever just find the next space and have the courage to walk through it and see where the journey takes you do you know what you're seeking, Richard? Have you been able to define that? Is that something I think that that is for many of, I think for most people, whether we recognize it or not, we're on some journey of, of we're, we're seeking something. We're seeking answers. We're seeking opportunity. We're, we're seeking ways in which to help clarify the past by the experiences of the present and future. Um, do you have a good grasp on what oh. you are seeking? It's a deep question, Rod, and, and wow. I mean, I think, look, if I'm entirely honest with you and unvarnished about this, I think I'm still in pursuit of validation. But the way I find that validation, I think, is to... I get huge joy from seeing people lifted up. I see huge joy from see, seeing people come alive. So why why was education so important to me as an educator 
because every night I would come home and be validated by the fact that somehow I had opened doorways for other people. I'd given them, you know, a route map to just be and to to have the confidence to pursue. Um, and so I think that stems back to my childhood. I think it's it's hugely important to me, and my great joy has never come from acclaim or money or my joy still comes from lifting people up and and if i may to go back to ken for a second when he died i think because of my association with him and his patronage a lot of people said oh you're going to be the new ken you're, you're going to honor him by carrying his torch and i thought long and hard and and conflicted because i didn't want to be I didn't want to be using Ken's legacy to lift myself up or do that sort of stuff. And I, I thought long and hard about how do I honor this man who I described as my professional father. Um, and in the end, what I came down to was this and why I think I loved him so dearly was despite his incredible acclaim, success and genius, the man was a genius in so many ways. I saw the greatest joy in his eyes because he got to be Sir Ken and was able to connect extraordinary people. The moments I saw him take the greatest pleasure were when he brought people together um, like an alchemist from different backgrounds, introduced them to one another and saw how those people together created something extraordinary. And when those people were able to achieve things they never thought they could achieve, right? He was the ultimate educator. He was the ultimate facilitator. And so for me, that validated where, what is my pursuit? My pursuit is validation, and my validation comes from exactly those things, lifting people up, seeing the magic in other people's eyes, as it did the first day I walked into a classroom and worked with a group of kids, one of whom was a selective mute, and by the time I'd finished my little drama session with her, she spoke. That, that is, that's where it is. And so now, whether I'm doing it from a platform as a speaker, writing, talking to you, and whatever it is, the joy for me comes in that same replication. Am I lifting people up? Because I think in so many ways, my mother was the incredible role model of that. David, my teacher, was the incredible role model of that. But there were forces in my life who were the counter. And I just want to honor all of those efforts and those bra that bravery. And so that that's it for me. I want to... You've touched on a number of things here, um, <clears throat> which I'm not, was not surprised, and I had to prepare myself extra cup of coffee today for me, Richard. Uh, was when we think about change, it feels as if change is omnipresent. It it it's to the point when you listed like the the financial crisis, right, the recession, and you had obviously COVID. That that level of certainty, sort of to those two, you know, sort of a decade in between plus. Those kind of, that certainty kind of washed away for a lot of people, <clears throat> whether you were a CEO trying to understand how to lead and manage and grow and inspire, or you're a parent or you're a community member or a coach of an athletic team. Um, and I'm just wondering, because I, I, as a result of that, I get the sense, and maybe this is very Western of me, so please clarify that this is not going on across <laughs> the pond, is that we've turned into, a, we've kind of turned into scavengers. It's like we are 
we are piecing things together off of the backs of other people because we don't exactly know where we should be placing our bet on ourselves, mm-hmm. right? It's like we could watch a movie of a young child in a third world country who's going and, you know, stealing money from people's pocketbooks, right? A pickpocket artist. And you just say, oh, I feel so bad that that's how they have to piece together their life. And yet I feel professionally a lot of people are doing that because they're struggling to understand where is their footing. They mm-hmm. don't, they really don't understand how to, how to embrace or engage or plug into the work that they knew pre-pandemic, right? And now they're working out of their homes or they're doing hybrid and now there are more demands because you we were home. So does that mean we can add to the child care support mechanism? But my value was in my work. So it just feels like people are spinning. And I'm wondering how we can look at that and say, how do we need to help educate, not just the youth? but the workforce around the world to be able to handle change, like the types of skill sets that allow us to have, I think, an honest conversation with our a conversation with ourselves that says, is selfishness appropriate in certain circumstances? Where do I need to be thinking about myself? Because if I don't power my own power grid, there'll be no energy for me to disseminate out in whatever I do. And I think that that we're seeing that play out in a lot of ways. We're seeing that in in gender studies here in the U.S., where they're saying that boys and men are struggling to understand how to communicate in a world that is vastly different from their parents, um, in what is expected or you know I guess appropriate. Um, but I'm just curious as to how you have contextualized the skill sets needed in where change is even the term. We feel it feels like we almost need a different term because. There's no pause and change to me denotes that there's some level of there's an intermission and then Mm -hmm. a pivot. Mm -hmm. And I think we've sort of blown through the doors of intermission. And I'd really love to sort of for the audience to understand how you're looking at change and how we should be embracing that. The first thing I would say to in response to that, Rod, is is I think the longer I've explored these things and maybe why the synergy comes from for me is that actually the ability to deal with change is no different to the ability to learn. I think learning and change actually are the same, the same bedfellows, right? Um, and it goes back all the way to my training as a teacher. And, and this often blows people's minds. I remember one of my lecturers once saying to me, I think perhaps provocatively, but I think the sentiment is incredibly powerful, that we learn somewhere between 70 and 75% of everything we learn in our lifetime before we're five years of age, right? Now, I'm not talking about the stuff that comes with the knowledge of experience or experience of knowledge, you know, but I'm talking about we learn to walk, talk, most of us. We learn to understand body language, vocal intonation, facial expression, um, we learn to make sense of the sensory world around us. We learn to manipulate our parents, right? We, if we're born into multilingual homes, we speak every language spoken in that home. We are, we we actively seek change. We don't want the same moment twice in our lives, and we don't want to do the same thing for more than about thirty seconds. Short attention span, high curiosity, and yeah, there are there are loads of neurological reasons as to to why that's the case too. But it's always fascinated me. You know, I've not met a child, a toddler who is going through therapy because they can't cope with the rate of change or constancy of change in their life, right? I've not. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's always fascinated me. So I think there is an inextricable link. And I think it comes back to some of what we were saying before, which is 
we close all of that down because we start to believe that logic is the only currency of clever and that certainty is the reward for applying logic to every situation. Um, I think we spend a lot of our lives closing down potential opportunities because it's not the logical thing to do. It won't necessarily lead to certainty. Um, and I think what, what happens in all of that then is we become reactive. Most of our lives are then, it's a bit like the term of a new president in the US or a prime minister in the UK, right? We hear presidents talk about the first 100 days because the first 100 days are a bit like being naught to five in, in the human life cycle, right? You can do everything, you can explore anything, but once you've been through the first 100 days, the whole thing catches up with you and you spend 90% you know, of the rest of your tenure being reactive. And that's how life feels. And it's why I think when people hear change, and you're right about needing a rebrand, they don't hear change as a positive thing, as a potential for adventure or opportunity. What they hear is, oh my God, there's a storm coming. I'm going to have to work harder. I'm going to have to pivot. I'm going to have to chase just to keep up. So AI now is the big thing, whereas experts, as you know, were talking about AI a decade ago, right? We've only just gone, oh, AI. Um, and we're already behind the curve, right? So we're all exhausted just thinking about how we managed to cling on to Usain Bolt's coattails because the firing pistol's gone and he's miles away. Um, so we don't hear change as a positive. For most of us, our experience of it is reactive. In a professional environment, for most of us, it is governed and driven by something or somebody else. So it's a disenfranchising feeling as well. And so going back to childhood and the way we think about raising our children, I've always believed that great educators do two things. Great parents do two things too, right? The first is we help our kids to dream because you can only dream if you're furnished with new experiences, with things you didn't know, don't know. One of the things I often say to to training educators is that you learn nothing new by getting something right. You only ever learn something new from the point of a mistake or the realization that you don't know something or you can't do something, right? But as we get older, we lock that away because we don't want to be exposed to not knowing and not doing. So we, we learn less, right? So first of all, we have to help our kids to dream. And I would argue that as adults, we don't do enough of that ourselves. We don't push ourselves out of our comfort zone, furnish ourselves with new experiences, no matter how big or small. We don't give ourselves the opportunity to try new stuff because we're spending so much of our lives being reactive, trying to control, holding on to the parameters, knowing what we know, liking what we like. And then the second element of education, which I think is also then about how you bring in other people as an educator, as a parent, but as adults in terms of the power of collaboration, the way you turn your dream into an aspiration, once you've got a dream, a fantasy, something that really lights your fire again, is then the, the way you turn it into an aspiration is put build the rungs on a ladder, right? That turn it from being something up there that's a fantasy to something that's tangible, because now you can take steps towards it. And that's where you frame the learning. Because that's where learning comes in. Now you know the new skills, the new knowledge, the new things, the new techniques you need to learn to maybe get to that point. So as an adult, you know, how, how often 
do we hear retired folks say, oh, I'm going to crochet. I've always wanted to crochet. So I'm going to go to crochet classes. Or I'm going to learn to play golf because now I've got time. So I'm going to take golf lessons, right? And the problem is we kind of put that at either ends of our life. And what we need to do is I think suck that right the way through our lives. So we need to create permissions and opportunities to allow ourselves to dream and then to build the rungs on a ladder which turn those dreams into aspirations. What that will allow us to do, and not, not necessarily in a grandiose way, is weirdly it helps you frame change, it helps you frame the uncertainty and the things that are sprung on you. Because then what you're able to do is go, okay, there it is. It might not be a dream, but it's something buzzing up there. My job now, my, my, my way forward is for me to put the rungs on the ladder to help me get to it. Um, I don't know if any of that makes sense, but, but for me, it's that link between learning and change, which we need to rebrand. It makes a lot of sense. I think it will resonate with a lot of people. Um, trying to put a bow on this conversation is definitely a challenge because there, there are a lot of neurons firing which is a good thing, right? It's a new experience in that way, and I hope it is for the audience. Here's what I, what I want to do to try to tie the beginning of our conversation, because I, I do think that this will, this will impact the listener. If you were to sort of grade out or think about the permission you give yourself, I'd be curious as to where your permission level relative to your youth is in allowing that experience that part that chapter of your life to influence your present and future wow that's that's an amazing that's a that's a really interesting question um i think i think if i'm honest i'm a bit like an organization when i was a child growing up i, I came out of my childhood my adolescence a bit like a company that's failing right in other words i had nothing to lose so I actually think people are far more courageous. And I'm sure this is a pattern in some of the amazing people you've interviewed, Rob, the people that have really gone on to have extraordinary success in their fields and their lives. They often come from a background where they've got so little to lose, they have the courage to try anything, right? And the interesting thing is, as the success accrues, the stakes get higher and it becomes more challenging perversely then to stay in the mindset that you had that got you to the place you got to in the first place. I mean, like you, I've seen it in so many organizations, particularly in the, the new tech sector where startups have got nothing to lose. So they're incredibly innovative and creative. And then, then one or two of them become Google and suddenly they've got shareholders and accountability and market share that they could lose and billions of dollars investment, all the rest of it. And suddenly the decision-making process changes. So for me, I think what I've lived through in my phase, the golden phase for me, perversely, trauma in my very early childhood, that became a kind of nothing to lose attitude in my adolescence and the decision-making in my teenage years and my 20s and perhaps even my early 30s to the sheer adventure and joy of this world I didn't know existed, which happened to me post my career as an educator. And now as I head into my mid-50s and I start to think about legacy, economic legacy for my family, um, legacy of what have I actually left behind and what will people say of me, 
um, legacy in terms of my friendships, my emotional connections. Weirdly, I think I'm in the most challenging period of my life right now because now I have something to lose. And one of the things I have to do constantly is remind myself of the person I was that got me to the person I am and to find the courage to continue to embrace that. Wow. Um, what what a, uh, a topper to an incredible conversation um, driven by you and your willingness. I'll say this, Richard, what I, I hope people under, get and, and take from this is a willingness to walk down a very sometimes, you know, um, dimly lit history um, and know that the the rope of connection, that tethered line is there and to trust your experience and communicate that or translate that into um, into your current life, I think is is really important now. I, maybe I see that at the ages of my kids and, and trying to support them in ways that are familiar to me, but also hopefully thoughtful as we move forward in worlds that they, you know, I can't explain uh, and they're going to have to experience. Uh, I want to encourage people to check out Richard. You can go to richardgerver.com. He's got a great and very informative website. You'll see him on LinkedIn. Um, also, I would say, we didn't talk about this earlier, but he's got a LinkedIn learning course uh, that is incredibly good, I think, for those that are that are looking to continue their learning and sort of micro bits um, that fit your lives. I mean, you should really check out Richard's LinkedIn learning course. We've got a children's book coming out next year. We've got the Learning Bridge podcast. And I won't, I won't uh, say it, but you'll learn that when it launches, he has some incredible guests. So if you want to learn sort of the other side of the coin and the conversation that Richard leads, I think you're really going to enjoy that. Uh, again, thank you, my friend, for being you, uh, for continuing to challenge me and those that are in the audiences near and far. Uh, wow. Always inspiring. Uh, we want to thank Richard Gerver. Go to richardgerver.com to learn more about him and check out his books, Change, Simple Thinking, Creating Tomorrow's Schools Today, and Education, a Manifesto for Change. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom. <laughs>